Imagine, if you will, a podcast. A podcast beyond that which is known to man. It exists in both fandom and discovery, in viewing and critiquing. My name is Matt Hurt. This is Anthology. And welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast exploring science fiction anthology storytelling during television's first golden age, beginning with The Twilight Zone. Each podcast, I share my thoughts on an episode of this iconic series as a first-time viewer, as well as share some trivia about the episode. I then end each podcast with a bonus review of a movie or show related to the week's episode. You can find more of Anthology at AnthologyPod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod. You can tweet me at ObsessiveViewer. You can send an email to Matt at ObsessiveViewer.com or call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099. If you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. The more ratings and reviews I get, the easier it will be for people to find the show in iTunes' search results. Also, if you wish to support Anthology with your wallet, there's a donate button on AnthologyPod.com and a link in the show notes of this episode. Every donation made using that donate button goes directly toward the fees to keep the podcast running and is unbelievably appreciated. Today on the podcast, I'll be discussing The Chaser. It's the 31st episode of The Twilight Zone's first season, and it aired on May 13th, 1960. And for this week's bonus review, I'll be sharing my thoughts on Loved to Death, a 1991 episode of Tales from the Crypt that was based on the short story that The Chaser was adapted from. And I'm going to go ahead and just dive right into the episode here. Um, As always, I'm going to go ahead and read a plot description of... The Chaser, uh, courtesy of the Twilight Zone Companion. As always, going forward from this point on, we'll be spoiler heavy on The Chaser. Um, so if you haven't watched it yet, go and check it out on Netflix, uh, Hulu, Amazon Prime, um, anywhere really. <laughs> Desperate to win his Leela's affection, Roger obtains a love potion from an enigmatic professor named A. Damon. Visiting Leela's apartment, he manages to slip her the potion in a glass of champagne. It works, but too well. After six months of marriage, uh, Roger is so sick of Leela's nauseatingly intense devotion that he resolves to do her in. Returning to the professor, Roger pays $1,000 for a dose of his guaranteed glove cleaner. No trace, no order, no taste, no way to detect its presence, and it's sure. At home, he slips the liquid into Leela's champagne. But upon hearing that she is expecting a baby, his shock is so great that he drops the glass. Outside on the patio, Professor Damon reclines on a desk chair, smoking a cigar. He blows a heart-shaped smoke ring and disappears. Okay, first of all, I'm not sure if it's pronounced Damon or Demon. Um, uh, I believe it's probably Demon, I'm not sure. But anyway, um, I'll get to that in a bit. Um, but before I get into my review of the episode, I'm going to go ahead and do a, a quick talent rundown of the cast and crew. This episode stars George Grizzard as Roger Shackleforth. Uh, this is his first of two Twilight Zone episodes. Next we'll see of him is the season four episode In His Image. And uh, he also appeared in one episode of One Step Beyond. And a little bit, piece of trivia trivia about him, he was primarily a stage actor who won a Tony in 1996 for his role in a play called A Delicate Balance. Um, and prior to that, he had two Tony nominations for past performances. And co-starring in this episode as the professor is John McIntyre. This was his only episode of The Twilight Zone, and he's perhaps best known, maybe, Um for his role as, I don't know if it's best known, but, um, he played Sheriff Al Chambers in Psycho. And I, <laughs> I spent this whole episode wondering where I knew him from. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, there, there you go. Um, he actually worked a ton. Um, like he has a whole bunch of credits. It's, it's kind of crazy. Nothing really that stood out as anything that I'm, I'm aware of. But I mean, obviously a lot of that's before my time. And rounding out the cast as Layla is Patricia Berry. Um, she actually just passed away uh, here a few weeks ago on October 11th at the age of 93. 
And uh, yeah, I believe it was of natural causes. Yeah, so that's kind of interesting. And this is her first of two Twilight Zone episodes. The next we'll see of her is season four's I Dream of Jeannie. And she was, she graduated from Stevens College, which was a uh, woman's college in Columbia, Missouri, known for having an excellent theater program. And she actually has a scholarship award there that's named in her honor. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. Writer for this episode is Robert Presnell Jr., uh, based on a short story by John Collier. This was his only Twilight Zone teleplay, and this was the only the only episode of the Twilight Zone that was adapted from uh, something of John Collier's. And uh, as for Robert Presnell, he became or he began his career as a reporter for the M- Milwaukee Journal, and uh, he later contributed art articles and short story uh, and short stories to uh, magazines. He also wrote, produced, and directed radio shows in uh, 1930s in uh, New York City. So that's kind of interesting. And uh, going back to John Collier, whose whose short story was the the origin for this episode, Um, he has one story credit for an episode of Journey to the Unknown um, in 1968 in an episode called Eve. And he was also uh, the writer... And uh, had story by credits on several episodes of the of the show Tales of the Unexpected. And director for this episode is Douglas Douglas Hayes. Uh, this is his third of nine episodes. He previously directed and When the Sky Was Opened and Elegy. Next, we'll see if his is here in a couple weeks for the After Hours. Okay, and I'm going to go ahead and dive right into my review here. Um. First, uh, I like to kind of reflect on what I knew about the um, episode before uh, watching it for the first time. And um, what I knew about The Chaser was um, absolutely nothing. <laughs> the The title, I, I went ahead and wrote, I wrote out, wrote out my notes um, as I was watching it. So before I watched it, I wrote out um, what I knew before. Not a thing. The title makes me think alcohol, which makes me think maybe a Western but I have no clue. So I kind of just assumed that it was something alcohol related. And even as I go through the episode, um, for the first time, I immediately wondered if the, uh, if the chaser was Roger, uh, Shackleforth himself, cause he is chasing Layla throughout the episode. Um, so I'll start out by talking about a couple things that stood out to me from a technical aspect or technical perspective. Um, first of all, when Roger visits the professor, um, there's just such a really, a really cool shot, um, of him opening the door and it's just darkness behind him and deep in the darkness is a smaller door for obviously distance and depth. And I just thought that that imagery was really cool. It, It looked really good. It was very, um, foreboding and made me uh, very curious about what was going to happen. Um, the downside of that is I hated the music during it. I really did. It's kind of, uh, it was kind of big and energetic. And I, I think that that was such a, such a wasted opportunity to have kind of a more subtle or, or creepy atmospheric score playing. Maybe that's not the intention of the episode. The episode seems kind of, playing more of a comedic turn than anything. Um, so maybe that's my failings as a, as a viewer of it, but I don't know when you have a character who eventually contemplates murder, um, and who is not really that likable of a character. Um, and in this scenario of, of something that is so steeped in mystery because, because we, because he's given the card and he doesn't know what he's going to find there. I just kind of wish that there was something a little, a little darker, um, to match that, the imagery of that scene. As for when he gets into the, it gets into the building and meets the professor. Um, this, just the, the design of the library or the, um, I guess library, the shelves of books all around the professor, I I loved that visual style as well, or that visual uh, as well. Uh, that set seemed uh, like something that Henry Bemis would have loved. 
but I just something about it. I just I I love it, and I it's so confined. It's it's not like the professor is standing necessarily between rows of of bookshelves or he's not in a big room a big library everything is confined to two book bookshelves on the left and right and one behind them so it kind of has this very close confined feel that makes it feel a little a little more unsettling than it would otherwise cuz we don't have any context for what is surrounding them in this area um for all we know uh, it could just be that's just the room that's on the other side of the inner door of the room of the building when Roger walks in and we don't even see what's around that door because it's shrouded in just pitch black. So I just I liked the design aesthetic of, of the set of this episode um, pretty well. And to kind of backtrack a little bit here, I'm going to start at the beginning of the episode where we open on the a line of people waiting to uh to use a telephone in a, a bar and it's quickly established that this is new york it's it's you know they're clearly agitated um at roger um obsessively and repeatedly dialing a number um very robotic like in in the way that he's doing it and there's there's some there's some real charm in this scene um, we're introduced to the fact that Roger is repeatedly calling the same number. And when this man just kind of enters the line and he's getting the, he's getting the exposition out of the way for us, but it comes uh, it comes across so naturally. And I don't know what it is about this, but just the, uh, the, the sequence where he is basically bringing in, uh, or he's going through each each person in the line to buy their buy their place in line, just a dollar here, dollar there. Then the woman kind of kind of gives him a little bit of pushback, saying like, "Well, it's the front of the line. I deserve more than a dollar." I don't know. There's just there's so much character in those interactions, as as brief as they were, and I kind of I don't know. I kind of loved that little moment where there's just this whole thing of these these complete strangers um, interacting with each other. We never see them again. We we never have any any contact with them at all. And it's just I don't know. Something about it is just really endearing to me, and something that really stuck uh, stood uh, stood out to me as just something that something that I enjoyed quite a bit. And then the man gives Roger a card, and um, this is completely anecdotal, apropos of nothing, but there's a certain way that, like, when he hands him the card, like, at that angle, he looks a lot like, to me, um, or vaguely, like, um, Alfred Hitchcock. I thought that was just, I don't know what point I'm making there, but it was just kind of interesting and kind of, uh, that's what it reminded me of. Which I guess, which I guess is kind of funny because this episode includes two people, uh, conniving over, you know, the murder of another person. Um, kind of seems suspenseful and, and like a Hitchcock thing. But again, that's completely anecdotal, has nothing to do with this review. I'm wasting time. So, uh, we're introduced to Roger and he is clearly in love. Certainly tells, tells us that he's in love. He's chasing, uh, this woman. He finally gets her on the phone. They have a conversation. It's clear that she's not interested, but she seems kind of, I don't know. She's, she's very, uh, she's, she's very much uh seems like she's toying with him she's clearly like she's not interested but she's not i mean she's still answering the phone eventually and so then we have the man give him give roger the card and one of the things that i kind of enjoy about this is that we don't have any context for why he knows about it what anything like that we don't have any context for what the deal is with the card it's all completely word of mouth and it's completely like you can you can imagine it being just this kind of chain of things that he's you know uh customers hand the card out to to people when they when they see that they need them and i mean why <laughs> assuming that they are in the same situation or well i mean that's not fair that's that's not fair because that's not really uh there's nothing to imply that the man that gave Roger the card was also someone who's lovelorn and and did that. Uh, there's nothing really to indicate that except that he knows that it will fix 
that the professor will fix whatever Roger wants. And maybe that's a malicious thing on the, on the man's part at the telephone. Uh, I don't know if we're, I don't know if we can infer that it was a, uh, malicious thing to give him the card knowing that, well, maybe he wants to murder her or something, or maybe that's a stretch. I don't, I don't know. But on the, but overall, I really like the way that it's just completely word of mouth. That's, that brings us into it. We know what we're getting, or we don't know what we're getting, I should say, but we know that that's all the backstory we need for, for this storyline. Um, and it's very, it's very brief. It's very efficient storytelling. And I, I dug that about it. So in my notes, as, as he's at the, as he's at the professors and I'm, I'm in awe over the set, I start to piece together that I think this guy, I think this episode and this guy, it's about a love potion. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know. I kind of, I kind of enjoyed that because like that realization of me not knowing what this was about and realizing like, oh wow, there's, it's going to be a love potion. I don't, as a plot device, this is something that is referenced a ton. Like, I mean, it's, it's all over the place. It is a fixture of, of, um, science fiction. Um, I just recently saw it in an episode of Rick and Morty. Um, that was actually handled really well, but, um, it made me wonder if this was, I don't know. I can't, out of curiosity, I wonder if this was not necessarily the origin of that type of story, but I wonder is, is this what made it what popularized it? Um, is this a piece of fiction that popularized this narrative device more than wherever it was, uh, was before? I don't know, but, um, the staying power of the twilight zone would have me think that maybe it contributed to it at least. So when the professor is telling Roger about, about the love potion or, or he's pitching it to him, I really got the distinct impression that he was, he was, trying to sell him like an android or a robot. Um, because he, he says, um, if in time or, or the way that the way that he describes it, the, the way that he describes this product and, and its effect on another human being is there is a detachment to it that he is, he is describing it as if she is not a human being as if she is just a toy for the man or she is, she's something that um, will belong to him after she takes this. And it's, it's disturbing. That is a disturbing prospect. I don't know if that was an intentional, that, that kind of, uh, that kind of phrasing, but, um, or that implication, but it came across really interestingly in the, in my uh, viewing of it. And it made me feel a little bit more disturbed about it and, in kind of a good entertaining way, I guess. And to kind of extrapolate that, that, uh, read on it, he says, if in time you look at another woman or do more than look, she'll feel hurt, but she'll, she'll forgive you. And that's just, that's kind of disturbing because it's the, where he says she'll feel hurt. It's, it's crazy to think that he is going to be in complete control of her emotions. He is robbing her of her emotions, which is something that I'll get to here in a bit, but it's just, it's really disturbing the way that, the way that he phrases it. And I, I enjoyed it. Um, or I thought that it was a good setup for the story going forward. And then he references the glove cleaner, which I'll admit, I didn't really catch the first, uh, the first time. Um, he he mentions that it's also known as the eradicator and i that that line i just completely missed in my first viewing i don't know why but um that made my first viewing kind of confused cuz i didn't know what the deal was with this glove cleaner like i knew that there was something to it but i didn't catch that it was you know poison um so i kind of went through the rest of the episode assuming that this glove cleaner was supposed to be something to break the spell and that he was actually, I I was under the assumption that it was going to be revealed that it was poison. But on subsequent viewings, I got a better understanding of it, obviously, and uh, it upped my enjoyment quite a bit. Um, or it, it made me understand it more, obviously, and it made me enjoy it a bit more. And I like the kind of laid back way that the professor is, is selling this product to Roger and the way that he's describing it. Like you can tell that he's been through this countless times and it's such an evil and disturbing way to 
um, sell a product. Um, he is, he is a really evil salesman. Like he is just, I mean, he's selling, selling him the love potion for a dollar. And then with the knowledge or, or knowing that he's going to come back for, uh, the thousand dollar solution, um, to, to his problem. And it's, it's really, it's really interesting. The professor character is so evil and, and interesting to me. So then Roger takes the poison or not poison, but the love potion to, uh, Leela. And this, it's, this was such an interesting sequence to me because he is throwing himself at Leela and they are, he's for like, he's forcing himself to forcing her to have a drink with him so that he can roofie her and ostensibly have his way with her. And what I came away from with this was that, um, Patricia Berry played this character really well. Um, she plays Leela with such an air of self-importance and self-satisfaction at the fact that she has this man by the, by the pinky, um, or wrapped around her finger and that she, she seems to be relishing in the attention that he's giving her. And, um, it's something that is, again, she's just toying with him. She's using him for her vanity and she's humoring him, but also she's getting some, um, entertainment or satisfaction out of the entire exchange, which is just an interesting, um, element to me. There's an, it's an interesting part of the episode for me because it's, it makes her not really that likable, but it makes her, it doesn't make her, um, it adds a layer to, to her character. She's not just a victim of, um, something disgusting and, and heinous, as being having her will her will uh willpower completely taken from her she's not only a victim of that but she's also like she's not she's not an innocent party in in um in it either oh i don't know if i would necessarily say that uh that's a little harsh but it's she's not just a one-dimensional woman character who is uh being forced to feel a certain way about another person and forced into things that she consciously wouldn't do. She is her own character who has her own kind of, um, like I said, sense of self-importance and, and, uh, kind of her own little quirks that makes it a little entertaining to see her, that flipped on its ear completely and see her kind of just being a completely different character. I'm sure that that's why it was written that way is that, she was, she was originally, um, she couldn't just be a standard, uh, uh, female love interest character. She had to have her own personality or her own, um, style so that this switch when she is under the, uh, love potion works like it needed to be a drastic enough change on a completely different side of the spectrum to really sell that, um, that instance or that situation. And Roger's behavior is so in this in this opening act or this opening half of the episode, his actions and his behavior is so desperate and clingy, and it's so off-putting because he is like a like he is under his own spell from from Leela. He is his, he is under his own um, love potion that she concocted with her beauty or whatever we don't really have much background on what their um, situations like. I don't know if he's just head over heels for her just because of her looks or if they have a history, but um, he comes across as desperate and clingy. And it's also really disturbing because he is drugging her and he is robbing her of her consciousness or of her willpower. And that is embodied so much in the look that he gives her after she takes the, a drink of the champagne. Um, there is this really, it kind of, it seems like it's meant to play, to play as comedy. Like, like, Oh, he's, he's looking for the, looking for the, um, response from her, but it is kind of eerie cause he's just staring into her and waiting for her. And it's just this very, very creepy 
creepy look that he gives her. And throughout the scene, as she's, as she's kind of wandering around, um, she's kind of like a ticking time bomb. <laughs> um, and she's pretty cruel. Like she's, like she's kind of over it. She's, she's humored him. She's had her fun with him. Um, and now he's, she's growing tired of him. And so she's, uh, throwing him out. And I can see her side of it. Like it's not, like she's kind of cruel and everything, but it's not like, I mean, the guy is super persistent and he is like forcing himself on her. And that's something that's granted. Yeah. She's kind of toying with him and everything, but I can see why she would need to be cruel to kind of get it through to him to get him out of there. And then the turn in the scene, the the scene that maybe the one, the one moment where everything kind of, the one moment that stood out to me is the standout of the, of the episode really is when the potion starts to take effect and she says, what's happening, what's happening. And that dialogue to me is like really, really disturbing because she's still conscious of her old feelings as the potion is working its way through her system and she can feel it taking hold. So you can see her like her by her saying what's happening, what's happening. She is not understanding what her body is wanting to do. And she is feeling herself slip away. And it's such a 180 for her that she is completely confused. And then after that, we only see her being completely devoted to this man and completely obsessed and um, living for him. And she becomes a prisoner. And what's even what what's maybe a little bit, what's, what's a bit, disturbing about that is that after the act break there's a time jump they've been married for six months and she is just a complete servant to him and it is really sad and and i don't i don't know i guess maybe the way that it's kind of played as comedy is a little irritating to me it's um or no no that's not true um and it's really it's sad and (laughs) <laughs> like even with a few even with a few seconds of of um about 30 seconds worth of worth of scene uh seeing her like this it's already irritating like i can see how non-stop of this would just be absolutely irritating to him and it's such a weird reaction to have that she is completely completely devoted to him under like uh and it's not under her own volition. Like she is under his spell and like he can't get a moment's peace. It's kind of a funny piece of irony for the, for the show, but she is super persistent and pushy, but you can't hate her for it because she is, or you can't dislike her for it. I should say, because she is not herself. And that's kind of the most disturbing part of this entire episode is that he, again, he stole her, um, consciousness essentially. And the, the funny thing is, is that he's tired of it. Um, and she is so like entranced by him saying that I love to love you. And, and when he finally has enough and decides to go see the professor, she like, like she pouts at him and says, while you're gone, my love will grow and grow. And, um, that's also that, like that, uh, that dialogue, that, that, that line in particular is kind of disturbing on repeat viewings because she is pregnant and her love for him is growing inside her. And what is interesting about the second scene with the professor and, and Roger and something that I kind of wish was, um, handled a little bit darker, really. Um, overall, I wish this episode, just its overall tone, I wish it was just darker in general, but that's maybe a failing on me as a, as a viewer of it. But, um, he sees the professor, I believe he sees him specifically for the glove cleaner, for the, for the, for the poison. And that gives the scene such a conspiratorial, uh, conspiratorial feel and, and a darkness to it. And, I like the contrast between the two scenes because he goes for a product for the first scene um, and he's super excited about the love potion and then now he just wants to kill the woman. And I, I like the juxtaposition of those. There's there's a good contrast between those two scenes so that it's not, 
um, labored that we go back and revisit that same set with the same actor. And it's, it's a completely different scenario and a different setting. I, I like that. And it's kind of, and while this might, I don't know, again, this might be for comedic effect, but um, I thought it was really disturbing that Roger's main hangup over buying the, buying the poison is money. Um, he doesn't really, like, it's not a conflict of whether or not he wants to murder this woman, but it's whether or not he wants to spend that much money. And he kind of, uh, I thought that that was, that was particularly disturbing. And then we get the the kind of final speaking scene of of the professor where he he kind of looks to the uh speaks somewhat to us and says first the stimulant then the chaser. And at that moment we see he's just a sinister salesman. I kind of I kind of wondered if given his name I kind of wondered if this would be a another like deal with the devil kind of episode like escape clause or something. And I'm kind of glad that it wasn't like that per se. He's his his um, his character is more uh, ambiguous and, and he doesn't need to be this otherworldly or, um, this mystical character. He could just be this guy who whips up potions. Um, and it's kind of left up to the audience to kind of, you know, put that together. So then we get to kind of the closing moments of the episode where he goes back, Roger goes back to his wife and he plans to kill her. And it's kind of set up as, a little bit of a red herring where it seems like maybe the uh maybe he'd get the glasses confused and drink the wrong glass and kill himself but that kind of seems the camera kind of toys with us that way cuz he goes to sit on the sit on the uh, couch on a certain way and then he switches around so you kind of get like I had to rewind it <laughs> to to keep track of where where the uh where the poison was and I I kind of uh I liked that aspect of it. And I like that it didn't go full on for that. It That's just a little bit of a tease. And then we get the moment. Well, okay. Before we get to the, to the big uh, moment at the end, I'll say that um, when the professor is speaking to Roger back uh, scene before when, when he gets the glove cleaner, um, he says that don't hesitate. Um, I can't remember exactly what he says, but he says, don't hesitate. If you do, you won't ever be able to do it, which kind of comes across as a like, okay, well, there's some mystical, like, like, uh, supernatural things to this that, that as soon as you can't do it, you'll, you'll never be able to do it. Um, but I feel like that's more saying like, if you don't have the, if you don't have the gall to murder a person, you're never going to get that back. You're never going to have that. I hesitate to say courage, but um, you're not going to go through with it if you if you have doubts before you do it. And I like that what gives him doubts or what what makes him just what completely destroys his chance of doing it is the reveal that she's pregnant. And when she says something about a rabbit and holds up the holds holds up the sock, it's I like that she doesn't just out outright say like I'm pregnant. It's just it's kind of the subtle thing, and that just makes again if this episode was more dark in tone i think that it would have had more of an impact on me but it still has a kind of deep uh i almost said deep impact like the movie um it it has a pretty big moment big impact at the end but something about it just didn't didn't really uh land with me as hard as i as hard as uh, hard as i wanted to in fact at this point i kind of to be completely honest i I thought that we had more to this episode. Um, I kind of, I kind of thought that this was maybe setting up a final act that had something to do with, uh, the, the professor or something, but no, I was surprised that this was, this felt like a really brief episode and it just kind of, just kind of didn't land with me. I thought that it was, uh, I thought that it was fine. And, and ending with the image of the, the professor on the balcony smoking the cigar and the, the heart shaped, uh, uh, smoke ring was i don't know just it just left me wanting it left me wishing that this was a maybe not a different episode but it just left me wanting more out of the episode than than what i got um the plot is really uh really dark and and kind of uh disturbing when you when you consider it but the tone of the episode didn't match that and again that could be a failing on me as as a viewer of it but 
it just it didn't really land with me. It just it was just okay. Um as far as themes and, and cultural subtext and everything, um obviously the theme kind of seems be careful what you wish for. Um because at the beginning of the episode all Roger wanted was the affection and adoration of of Leela, but I mean he got what he wanted. Um and that ultimately put him in a terrible position and her in a terrible position as well. Um, and I kind of wonder if, well, I'll get to that in a second, but um, in fact, the end is, is darker than what I gave it credit for because it's um, kind of disturbing because um, we have this ending where this man is uh, stuck with this woman that, that, irritates him to no end and is so insistent on showing her love for him and while on the other hand she is under the spell that cannot be broken that robs her of her consciousness and robs her of her free will and um robs her of of independent thought and they're bringing a child into the world and that is so bleak and depressing and and sad um and it makes me wonder if if my reaction to the episode itself, like kind of wanting it to be darker in tone and wanting it to be, um, wanting more out of it. I kind of wonder if that's a reaction due to my age and, and the fact that I've grown up in the modern era, I'm a millennial or what have you. Um, I kind of wonder if maybe I find, maybe I'm, maybe I'm finding that the episode today comes across the ending, at least comes across as tame when I don't have a frame of reference for how it was when it was aired, when it aired in 1960, but I could see it being a pretty provocative ending. Um, he's about to murder this woman who reveals she's pregnant. I could kind of see it being more impactful back in 1960 than it would be in 2016. Um, so yeah, I thought that it was okay and I'll, I'll go ahead. I'll get to my closing thoughts in a moment, but I just kind of want to run down a few things of, uh, a few a few pieces of trivia about it. Um, this episode was adapted by uh, Robert Presnell Jr. from the short story "The The Chaser," of course, by John Collier. Uh, the script was originally written for and produced live on television on the Billy Rose Television Theater back in 1951. And I tried to find a uh, a copy of this or, or find something of it, but I I couldn't. So that's why "Tales from the Crypt" is the bonus review. But um. This is the only season one episode that was not written by Rod Serling, Charles Beaumont, or Richard Matheson. Um, I thought that was pretty interesting, and I kind of wonder what kind of other, um, what other writers are going to be uh, added to this series as as we go forward. And uh, here's a quote that that Douglas Hayes had about uh, making this episode. It's courtesy of uh, Serling, the rise of. The Rise and Twilight of, tele- of Television's Last Angry Man. Uh, the quote says, That was one of the great things about The Twilight Zone. I had total freedom. Sometimes I would think of an idea that make uh, that made the episode more Twilight Zone-y, but that would require some expense. I remember one episode, The Chaser, in which I devised a huge bookcase that must have doubled the budget, but Serling and produ- producer Buck Houghton uh, never blinked an eye. They just said, Okay, great. I didn't have to argue with anybody over the money. Uh, they'd argue about the money and they let me have it. I know that they were having problems with Jim Aubrey, but they kept, uh, they kept them away from me. Uh, my responsibility was to get the job done. And that seems like a really cool environment or a really great uh, management staff to have um, for this. It, it really seems like it was really great uh, creatively for Douglas Hayes. Um, as for closing thoughts on this episode, um, I just, I, I've watched it a couple times and the first time I saw it, I, I did not like it. I, I wrote down in my notes that it was a weak episode. I didn't like it. It felt like the ending was abrupt and I felt like I missed something. And honestly, I did miss something in the first um, viewing because I completely missed the line about the uh, glove cleaner. But I felt like overall, as I kind of ruminated on this episode and rewatched it a couple times, I felt like this episode was just kind of goofy and, and didn't really, um, really hit me the way that I wanted it to. It was, it was kind of weak and didn't really impact me. And, um, I felt, I still felt like it ended before some final act that would have brought the story together. It kind of ended abruptly. And, uh, to that, it was just, wasn't, um, a really, 
standout experience for me. Okay, before we move on to this week's bonus review, here's a highlight from episode 177 of The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Mike and Tiny over at obsessiveviewer.com. It's a really it's a really engaging film and it's not what you would expect out of like when you hear independent romantic drama. It's not like it's not like a the story of how two people fall in love and live ha- happily ever after. It's like how two people dealing with stuff deal with their stuff. Hmm. while confiding in a total stranger. Of course, you can find The Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at obsessiveviewer.com. And you can find the episode you just heard a clip from at obsessiveviewer.com slash OV177. Okay, and this this week's bonus episode is uh, one I'm actually... Or bonus review. I keep... I always say episode. Um, this week's bonus review is Love to Death. It's episode one of, the, of Tal- Tales from the Crypt's third season. And uh, I'm really excited about it because as I've been prepping all the episodes for anthology and and uh, back when I was just a security guard before I had my before I had my uh, my my call center job now, um, I would have a lot of time to just sit at my desk and do nothing. So that's kind of the impetus of what made me start this podcast was I had a lot of free time to plan it out. But um, at the time, I kept thinking like, oh, you know, anthology, it's I'm covering science fiction anthology TV shows. Um, and my mind kind of wandered to that'd be kind of cool to do a uh, spinoff of this podcast, which is weird because this is kind of not a spinoff of Obsessive Viewer, but, you know, it's it's connected to it. Um, but to do a spinoff of this to do anthology horror shows and Tales from the Crypt is obviously high on that list. So this episode was kind of a fun uh, excuse to kind of not test the waters for that because I have no time to juggle three podcasts. I barely have time for two podcasts and especially when one of those podcasts has bonus episodes every week. But this was fun to kind of test, test that out because there's, there is a, um, there's something about the twilight zone that, um, the quality of of the episodes as they're produced and and the quality of them is so strong um that it makes it easy to devote so much of my week to producing episodes reviewing them and uh putting it together it makes it fun and there's a cheesy aspect to tales from the crypt that i don't know if would quite land for me if i were to do it week to week but um having said that i haven't actually seen Tales from the Crypt in a very long time. I remember seeing bits and pieces and maybe full episodes when I was a kid and far too young to watch it. And I remember that the Crypt Keeper scared me quite a bit. Um, but that's about all that I had. Um, that's all the memories I had of it. So having, so finding out that this episode or that the Chaser was adapted from a short story that was then um, adapted, that was previously adapted to the Tales from the Crypt comics, which then adapted it into the TV show's third season premiere, um, it made me really excited. And what made me even more excited was the fact that this episode is available in its entirety on YouTube. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes and you can find it on anthologypod.com uh, slash 026. And also I'll post it on the Facebook page, which if you haven't liked the Facebook page, go do that. Um, if you'd like, it's uh, facebook.com slash anthologypod. Okay, so going into this episode, I hadn't watched Tales from the Crypt in a long time, so this was an interesting um, thing to go into. And I, I didn't realize how... It, it's a weird juxtaposition of how my original um, memories of the Crypt Keeper, uh, when, when I was a child, the Crypt Keeper scared me. And like seeing it now, like, it is so cheesy and pun filled which is something that's right in my wheelhouse comedic uh, comedy wise and it was it was kind of a fun thing to to dive into and to set it set into this episode and so this episode is kind of point by point a lot similar to the episode of uh, the twilight zone and it's something that is uh not handled that well <laughs> this episode uh stars andrew mccarthy who actually was also in the monsters are on maple street which i reviewed in my uh episode reviewing the monsters are due on maple street the monsters on maple are on maple street being the 2002 remake of it in the 2002 twilight zone revival but 
there's a really weird opening scene where Andrew McCarthy comes home and he is, it's a, it's a dream sequence where he is envisioning him coming home to a, his wife who is kind of his muse and that he's writing a, a script about her. He's a screen screenwriter. So it's a dream sequence where he is essential or not really a dream sequence. He's, he's writing the scene where he is imagining coming home and she is just all over him. And it is so awkward and so, uh, cheesy, like over, overly cheesy, like ordinary tales from the crypt is pretty cheesy in its own right. But having this scene where it's just really over the top and really cheesy is just not, it did not give me a good, um, feeling going into the episode, but it's, it's kind of smutty. And I kind of, I thought that was kind of cool. Um, (laughs) So let's see. And, uh, I forgot to look this up, but there's an old lady neighbor who's kind of nosy and, or, uh, not nosy, but she's, there's a fun juxtaposition that the, that Andrew McCarthy's character is in the hallway and he sees this old lady and they're talking about how he is a writer and, and everything. And she says that, um, he probably writes a lot of, a lot of nasty things and everything. It's kind of played like, oh, it's this, you know, he's, she's disgusted by it. And then when he says, no, it's very wholesome, very wholesome stuff to kind of assuage her, um, judgment. And, uh, she's just like, Oh, that's a shame. And the door closes. I thought that that was really clever. So anyway, so he, uh, meets this woman in the building who is exactly, or is exactly what he envisions in his screenplay. And he's in love with her immediately. And, um, it is really uncomfortable because he is immediately a creep to her, uh, uh, toward her. He is immediately smitten with her. It's like, it's like Roger, uh, Shacklemore in, um, the chaser only on speed basically. <laughs> and it's just, it's really, it's really uncomfortable. And Mariel Hemingway plays, plays the woman and she is, I hesitate to say that she is awful from an actor's perspective, but, um, the character herself is really awful and terrible. Um, it's just, they go out of their way to not have, um, to not have any chemistry between the two and to not have her be likable at all. And, um, when, when he says that she, that he's writing a script, uh, with her in mind and everything, uh, and she can be famous because she wants to be an actress. She says, I'm sure you're going to be rich and famous one day. And on that day we have a date. And I'm like, in my notes, I put Jesus, I hate her. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So the episode kind of continues through, uh, it kind of goes through the same, the same kind of beats as, um, the chaser and in lieu of a professor, there's a character that's kind of, a the landlord that has some creepy, uh, surveillance equipment on the, on the residents. And he's kind of all knowing he kind of, uh, it seems like he's, I don't know when, uh, Candyman came out. I don't know if it, this predates Candyman, but he sounds like he's doing a, uh, Tony Todd impression. And it's kind of just not, doesn't really land for me. Um, and again, this is such a disturbing plot, but I, I, and I was hoping that Tales from the Crypt would take it to a more horror route, but they really don't for the majority of it. And, uh, but I will say this and I'll, I'll wrap up here soon cause I don't want to go into spoilers for this, but, um, the way that they end this episode is it's a departure from the way that the chaser ends and it is a horror element and, uh, and it ends in a horror way. And I really appreciated what they did for that. I liked the ending a lot, even though the road to the ending was just God awful. And, uh, yeah. So, um, if you're interested in it, I would check out, I would check it out. It's on, it's on YouTube in, in its entirety. It's, it's okay. It, it kind of, it sufficiently wet my appetite for, uh, entertaining an anthology horror podcast. So I don't know if I'll do that anytime soon, but I thought that it was, um, pretty bad up until the end, which turned out to be kind of okay. All right, so that'll do it for this week's episode. I have a guest in the studio now to record an episode of Obsessive Viewer, Robert Fekas, um, which we'll be reviewing Doctor Strange on Obsessive Viewer at obsessiveviewer.com slash OV193, I think, or 192. Anyway, um, join me next week for A Passage for Trumpet, uh, episode 32 of Twilight Zone's first season. And the bonus review, review for that is another... Um, 
Another thing you can find in its in its entirety on YouTube, I'll put the link in the show notes, but it's the Mar- the Miraculous Serum, an episode from Tales of Tomorrow. And also don't forget to check out my bonus reviews of Black Mirror, which are currently still running, and I'm about to start my reviews of uh, uh, the new season, which is on Netflix, and I'm really excited about it. So having said all that, thank you guys for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find more episodes at AnthologyPod.com, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please take a few minutes to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. The more reviews I get, the higher the show will be ranked in iTunes search results, making it easier for people to discover it and grow the podcast. Of course, you can always email me your thoughts and feelings about the show to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. You can also tweet me at obsessiveviewer, like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Mike and Tiny. Also check out the Obsessive Viewer blog at obsessiveviewer.com where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the Obsessive Viewer subreddit at r slash obsessiveviewer and check out obsessivebooknerd.com, our sister site for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious... Check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.